What an appropriate song as we turn back to the book of Galatians this morning and talk about salvation by grace through faith alone and the assurance that comes through that. Let me say a quick thank you to Alan and to Jose for sharing your story today. Thank you for doing that, guys. Let me, let me just tell you, your story is powerful. When you tell your story of what God has done for you and how you've connected with him, it touches lives. So don't be afraid to share your story with folks. You all have a story. And so share your story. Let people hear your story. Tony, where'd you go, buddy? Uh, think, where'd Tony go? Did he stay? There you are. Thank you, man. Um, Tony, uh, one of our um, international students, I first met Tony when he was in high school, coached him playing soccer and gotten to know him over the last several years, got the privilege of baptizing him a couple years back. And so what a privilege to see you stand and read God's word together, man. You've come a long way, buddy. I appreciate that so very much. Hey, take out your copy of God's word. Join me this morning, if you would. Again, book of Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter one. If you don't own a Bible, you didn't bring one with you. There are some there in the pew back in front of you. Uh, We're going to be in the New Testament, which is the backside of that Bible, page 147. Quick thank you to those that are joining us online. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. I know you can't physically be here, but you are with us and we appreciate you being here. So as you are finding Galatians chapter 1 this morning, I want you to turn your attention to this section over here, all right? I'm pointing this section out, particularly the folks that sit down in like the first two, three, or four rows right over here. And I want you to look at this section. Everybody glare at them just for a moment. Little little gospel glare right over here. Um, And tell me what most of the people sitting in the first four rows or so in these first two sections over here, most of them, not all of them, because there's some that don't fit the profile, but um, most of them over here, what do they have in common? They're young, right? Right? So the most of these folks are involved in our next generation ministry. So they are middle schoolers, high schoolers, our, our college students, and some of our young professionals who are out in the world who, who are together. Together, And almost every Sunday, they fill this area up, and I so appreciate them being here. As a matter of fact, let's just say thank you to this group right here for, for you know. It is such a refresher to me to see students uh, and young professionals serious about their walk with Christ. Not just, not just playing games, not just going through a mo- some, some, some motion, but they are serious about growing in Christ, and that is a blessing to me. But I want you to imagine for a moment that two-thirds of them aren't here. As a matter of fact, do me a favor. The first three rows right here, y'all go away. Just go outside for a minute. Just seriously, get up and go away. Just go out right out there. Just, seriously, just for just a minute, go outside in the hallway. Just go away. There should not be applause right now, Emily. That's not, that's not what we're looking for. Just imagine two-thirds of them aren't here. It's not hard to do, right? It's not hard to do. Because statistics tell us that after high school, those that have been attending church during their teenage years, at least 60% of them become spiritually disengaged. They walk away from the church. They stop going to church. They stop connecting with the body of Christ, and they walk away. Some of you in here probably can testify that that was you. You probably walked away for a while. Praise God, you came back. But not all of them do. And what a tragedy it is that when they leave and go out on their own, that they become disconnected from God disconnected from the church. That's not okay. 
That's not good. And 60%, by the way, is probably a low statistic. It's probably actually higher than that. 60%. Now, there's a lot. Of, somebody tell them they can come back, would you? Um, <laughs> we'll just leave them out there watching it outside. There's a lot of reasons why people, after they get out on their own, why they disconnect from the church. I think there's just a, a multitude of reasons. There's a host of factors. Uh, for some, they go to college, and for the first time, uh, they have their faith challenged. They have their beliefs challenged. And some of them will go to a university where it's extremely secular, extremely liberal, and they will find a, a professor who is skeptical at best about Christianity and antagonistic at worst about Christianity. And for the first time, they begin to wrestle with things, and they get pulled away. Others perhaps start hanging out with a group of friends who are unbelievers and don't have the same values and don't have the same agenda. And, and it's easy, by the way, it, you'll become like the friends you choose. Uh, you'll 100% become like the people that you spend time with. And many people go out and they surround themselves with an unbelieving friend group and it, it has a major impact on their faith. Some others perhaps um, start dating someone who does not have a relationship with Christ or at least not the same level of commitment to Christ, and they become enthralled in that relationship, and that relationship changes their dynamic of their walk with God. Others maybe have a life crisis. Something happens in their life during that period of time. Maybe they lose a grandparent, or, or even worse, maybe they lose a parent Maybe they become diagnosed with something, and, and that life crisis sometimes can push people away rather than draw them nearer to God. There are others, perhaps, that become ashamed of the lifestyle that they've adopted. For a while, they took a break during college, and then they started doing some things that they weren't proud of. In fact, they were ashamed of them. They felt guilty of them. And then they would go back to church, but when they went back to church, it just brought up these guilty feelings, and they didn't like to feel guilty, and so instead of feeling guilty, they just stopped going to church. Maybe it was some that their faith as a student was more ritual than relationship. Growing up, it was just what everybody else did, so, so they did it, or it was what their parents forced them to do without their parents actually helping them to understand that it's not a ritual. It's, it's really a relationship with God that will change everything. Maybe, maybe that's why so many walk away, because they found that they didn't need a ritual in their life. I think the bottom line for all of these is that many students, many young people are never grounded in their faith. They never take ownership of their own faith. For many, their faith is their mom's faith, or their father's faith, or their grandmother's faith. They believe because someone around them believed, but nowhere along the line did they come to know God personally. Nowhere along the line were they helped to understand that God loved them and wanted to have a relationship with them. They never took ownership of it. And therefore, it's really easy to walk away from something you never owned. And when we see this happening over and over and over again, this trend is tragic and it is sombering. And many of us have walked through it. Many of you as adults did this in your life. Many of you as adults and as parents are watching your children do this right now. And we must come alongside them. We must come alongside. Everyone must not only know 
not only know what we believe, but who we believe and why we believe it. We have to help. Families have to come alongside their children, and churches and friends have to come alongside families in order to help believers to stand confidently in their faith and contend for the gospel. There are so many falsehoods being taught today. We talk about fake news, but everything is so hard to determine what's real, what's not, what's the source of this information, what's true and what's not. And there are so many teachers out there, and how do you know what's a true gospel and what's a false gospel? Who's a true teacher and who's a false teacher? How do, how do we distinguish those things? That is the essence of why Paul is writing this letter to the churches of Galatia. Because they are being deceived away from the truth, and many people are leaving and going away from the gospel. And Paul says, we must address this. And church, that issue is no less relevant, no less important today than it was then. In fact, perhaps it's even more important today. So if you would, would you stand with me as we read from Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 this morning. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, and he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Heavenly Father, these are not simple words. These are not polite words. These are not easy words. These are very stark words that you had the Apostle Paul write. As a warning to those who would teach falsehood and as a warning to the church that would listen to false teaching. Lord, lives are at stake. Souls are at stake. The purity, the power of your church is at stake. And Father, most importantly, your glory, as we see it, is at stake when we distort the gospel. Father, we claim to be a gospel-centric church. We claim to proclaim the gospel above all else. And so let us pay attention today to your warning in this word about what distorting the gospel will do to the church and to the lost world. Lord, break our hearts and let us see your gospel in truth and in your glory. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So a patient walks into his doctor's office and the doctor says, well, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. And the patient said, well, give me the good news first. And the doctor says, well, the good news is you've got 24 hours to live. And the patient said, wait, whoa, whoa, wait, that's the good news? The good news is that I have 24 hours to live? What, what's the bad news? He said, well, my office has been trying to get a hold of you since yesterday. Another patient went into his doctor. Doctor said, I got some good news and got some bad news. 
The good news is if you take the pills in this bottle, all your symptoms will go away for the rest of your life. The patient said, well, that sounds great. All I got to do is take one of these pills every day and my symptoms will go away for the rest of my life. He said, yep, that's the good news. He opened up the bottle and there were three pills left. And he said, what's the bad news? <laughs> There's three pills in the bottle. Explain that to your neighbor, would you? Somebody lean over. There's enough pills for the rest of your life. Gotcha. All right, got it? Yeah, you got it. Keep up, people. Come on. They don't pay me for my, comedi uh, my comedian uh, jokes. Hey, um, there's good news and there's bad news. And Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, has good news and he has bad news. And he's already shared the good news. He did that in verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5 that we started with last week, he shares the gospel. He shares the truth. He says that there is grace and peace from God through Jesus Christ who gave himself up for our sins. He shares the gospel. There is good news. It is initiated by the will of God and it is accomplished by the works of Christ. Christ who voluntarily gave himself up, Christ who vicariously gave himself up in our place, and Christ who victoriously gave himself up when God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf and raised him back from the dead. Everything necessary to make De uh, dead and fallen man right with God has been done already through the work of Jesus Christ. It is finished. Paul says that's good news. Grace that brings peace. But then Paul starts to talk in verse 6 about the bad news. He quickly turns his attention from what is good to what is bad. In most of Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament, after his greeting, after introducing himself to who he's writing, he then will give typically a word of accommodation. He will tell them, thank you for this, or I appreciate this about your church, or he will praise God for the church, and he will say, God, I praise you for their love. I praise you for their faithfulness. And in most of the letters in the New Testament, that's exactly what he does. But in Galatians, there is none of that taking place. He neither thanks them for anything nor praises God for them for anything. Instead, Paul is so burdened by what is happening within these churches that he dispenses with any small talk and jumps straight to the point. He goes straight to the heart of the matter because he is so passionate about what's happening in these churches that he says, we need to address this and we need to address it now. Like a parent concerned over a child who's being misled or are making a poor life choice. Paul's anxious about what's happening to his spiritual children. These are churches that he evangelized. These are churches that he planted. These are churches that he discipled. These are churches that he cared for. And he had warned them that things like this were going to happen. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, he meets with the elders from the churches in Ephesus, and he tells them, Acts chapter 20, he says, be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples to themselves. Paul says, I know exactly what's going to happen. When I leave, there are going to come people behind me, and they're going to try to teach you falsehood. 
They're going to come in and they're going to teach you things that aren't right. They're going to pervert the gospel. They're going to distort the gospel. And they're going to do so in order to draw a crowd to themselves and to draw you away from God. He says, I know it's going to happen. And as he writes to the churches in Galatia, he's addressing exactly that. In verse 6, he says, I am amazed. The word means to be dumbfounded. It means to be astonished, to be bewildered. He says, I literally cannot believe my ears what I'm hearing that is happening in your church. I cannot believe what is going on in your church. I am dumbfounded by it. Now, he's not surprised that somebody has come in and tried to distort the gospel. He's not surprised that a false teacher has come into that church and tried to pull the people away. He knew it was going to happen. It was expected. That's not what surprises him. What surprises him is how easily and how quickly the church is being tricked and pulled away from the gospel. He says, I cannot believe that you people are being deceived so easily and so quickly. He's surprised because this deception and this defection is happening quickly. He says, I knew it was going to happen, but I it's, it's not been that long. It's been, a, it's been a few months. It's been a couple years. It hasn't been that long. How can you so easily be pulled away from the truth? Quite honestly, this happens all the time. If we go back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, remember the story of God delivering the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He called Moses up, and he had Moses go, and God performed many signs through Moses. And he delivered those, that nation of people out of Israel are out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land and the Red Sea collapsed down on their enemies. And you remember they got on the other side of the Red Sea and Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. Moses is up on a mountain literally talking to God. And while he is there, what are the people doing at the foot of the mountain? They have created an idol to worship. The one true living God has just miraculously delivered them out of slavery and their hearts immediately go to worship something else. Shouldn't surprise us that it happens. Our hearts are deceptively wicked. Our lives cry out to worship something. And it's easy to be deceived. It makes sense to me that Satan would want to attack the church as quickly as he possibly could. He failed in keeping Jesus from offering the perfect sacrifice, and so now he must limit the spread of the good news. He could not stop Christ, but now his attempt is to stop the message from going out, to distort the message, to change the message, to deceive the people, anything he can do. And while he will sometimes attack the church from outside, his primary plan and his most devious plan and perhaps his most successful plan is to attack the church not from the outside, but to attack the church from the inside. So why is Paul responding so quickly and so adamantly to this attack? What's causing this anxiety in Paul's life? To whom is he writing? As he writes this, who does he address this to? Is he writing to believers or unbelievers? He's writing to the churches of Galatia. He's writing to believers. 
People who have accepted that God is holy and that man is sinful. People who have accepted that there's nothing I can do to make myself right with God, but God has done everything necessary by sending his son to die in my place on a cross. God took what I deserved and put it on him. He took what he deserves and gave it to me. I accepted that. God has accepted that sacrifice because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is who he's talking to. People who have said amen to the offer of salvation by grace through faith. People he taught the gospel to. This is to whom he's writing. And yet he says, I am astonished at you people. I'm dumbfounded at you people. That you would be so easily deceived. Because these people, even though they know the truth of the gospel, are being confused. They are being seriously confused. Some who are saved by grace through faith are now trying to hold on to their salvation by their good works. They hadn't done anything to earn it, but now they think they have to do everything to keep it. There are others who are just being taught by the church through these false teachers that grace isn't enough, that you have to do something, that you have to observe the law, or you have to be circumcised, you you have to earn your salvation. Listen, these were people who had been taught by the greatest biblical teacher outside of Christ in all the world. These weren't people who had some sophomoric preacher. These churches had been taught by the Apostle Paul himself, who had received the gospel directly from God, and yet they were being deceived. How much more today would you guys have to be tolerate being taught by a guy like me? How much more tempting is it today to be pulled away from the truth of the gospel? How much more today is it that we have to look at this and say, we need to be grounded in truth? As he begins chapter 3, he's going to say this, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you into thinking these things? This is serious business to Paul. There's three things that confound him. These these three things that he is troubled by, and I want to quickly walk through these. Number one, people were deserting for a different gospel. Paul was upset because people were deserting for a different gospel. Verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The word desertion here means to, to change sides, to switch teams It was used of a soldier who would fight for this side one day, and then all of a sudden the next day, he's fighting for this side. Think of a a traitor or a turncoat, someone who deserts and leaves and goes and fights for the other team. These false teachers had come into the church and were presenting an alternative to what Paul had taught them about the gospel. They were coming in and saying, sure, sure, what Paul told you was great, but… Jesus is awesome, but you need to be circumcised. You can't be right with God if you haven't been circumcised. You can't be right with God if you're not obeying the letter of the law. And they were adding to the gospel. They were adding to it the law of Moses. And Paul is just simply saying, I can't believe that you're so quickly being deceived by this garbage. I can't believe you're buying into this. The word desert can also mean to transpose, though. It can mean to put in place another. In other words, 
if you're adding to the gospel, if you add anything to the gospel, you no longer have the gospel. It's not Jesus plus this, it's Jesus only. It's not salvation by grace through faith plus works, it's, it's salvation by grace through faith, period. If you add anything to it, it's no longer the gospel. And they were transposing, they were adding something to it. They were deserting the gospel for something different. The word different that he uses here, look how he says it. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for what? A different gospel. The word different here is very important. The word different here means another of a different kind. It means something that is completely different. Look at how verse 7 starts, which is really not another. He says, you're deserting the gospel for a different gospel that's really not another gospel. You're deserting it for something that's different, that's not the same. The word another in verse 7 means for something that is the same. You're deserting something that is the same for something that's not the same. What? He's just simply saying this. If you think that that's still the gospel because you added something to it, you haven't just added to the gospel, you've eliminated the gospel. It's not the gospel any longer. We cannot move on without noticing something very detailed here in this verse. When it says that they deserted, what does it say? What does he say they deserted? I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting what? Him. He doesn't say, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting the gospel, even though that's the implication. He says, I'm, I'm amazed you're deserting him. Because if you desert the gospel, then you desert the God of the gospel. If you desert and say, it's not just salvation by grace through faith, it is what I do, then you're not just walking away from a teaching, you're walking away from a relationship with God. You're walking away from the one who provided that relationship for you, who's done everything necessary for you. And I think that is the heart of why so many people walk away from church attendance and faith when they get out on their own, because they were never connected to the God in the first place. They might have been connected to a church, they might have been connected to a group, they might have been connected to a religion, but they were never truly connected to the man. And he's saying, when you walk away, you're not walking just away from a religion, you're walking away from him who made you right. You're deserting Christ. And the point is that there is no other way to be made right with God than through Jesus Christ, period. No other way. And I understand that that is an inclusive statement in a very exclusive world. Excuse me, it's an exclusive statement in a very inclusive world. We live in a world of religious pluralism. And to embrace a statement that says Jesus Christ is the only way to be made right with God, I understand that that is a hard stand to make. But it does not nullify its veracity. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not right. People were deserting for a different gospel. The second reason Paul is upset is because people were being disturbed by a distorted gospel. In verse 7 he says, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Because of their deceptive false teaching, I think there is a greater threat to the church, to those who are in the church trying to deceive it than those who are outside the church trying to attack it. 
that make sense? There's a greater threat to the church by those who are in it trying to deceive it than those who are outside of it trying to attack it. And false teachers and false systems demonically, uh, demonically distort the gospel. And when they do, they draw people away. And they cause disturbance and disruption within the body of Christ. Those who claim to be Christ followers who are actually teaching false gospels are inherently more dangerous because they give the appearance of leading people to God while at the exact same time actually building barriers that make it more difficult for people to come to God. They are pretending to be angels of light, if you will. It's the same issue that Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. He says, you guys, you claim to be mediators between God and man. You claim to be ones who bring people closer to God, but all the time, all you ever do is just make it more and more difficult for people to come to God. He says that you are being disturbed by them. This word disturbed means to stir up. It means to, to agitate. It means to agitate something that should be at ease. If you think about your your clothes dryer. You throw all those clothes in there and you set the timer and you hit the button and what happens? They just get spun around like this. They get agitated. And if we look back at verse 3 for a moment, someone tell me, what's the result of God's grace in your life? What should be the result of grace? Peace. The result of grace is peace. Peace with God We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer at enmity with God. We are now the children of God. We have peace with God. And when we know that everything has been done to make us right with God and that absolutely nothing can happen to separate us from the love of God, when we understand that we rest in the finished work of Christ and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, you know what the Bible calls that? Peace. We are at rest. There is a peace that passes understanding. But what might disturb our peace? What might disturb the peace that comes from grace? Well, if you distort the gospel. He says you're disturbed because somebody has distorted the gospel. Distort means to change, to corrupt, to pervert, to twist. The idea carries the idea that you turn something into its opposite that what's at this end ends up at this end, and what's at this end ends up at this end. You take everything and just turn it upside down. That's what it means to distort. And when you add anything to the gospel, you distort the gospel. If you add works to the gospel, it distorts the gospel. And when you distort the gospel, what does it do to your peace? It disturbs it. Because if I add works to grace, then I have to ask myself, how many works? What kind of works? Have I done enough works? Is there ever enough work? And I'm never at peace. I never know if I've done enough. So when the gospel is distorted and perverted, it unsettles people. Look, the gospel is given so that we would have peace in this life. How many people do you know actually have peace? And perhaps it's because they've been disturbed by a distorted gospel somewhere along the way. Paul is upset because people are deserting for a different gospel, because people are being disturbed with a distorted gospel, and because people are being doomed by a diametric gospel. Verses 8 and 9. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He almost repeats himself in the next verse. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel that is contrary to what we have received, he is to be accursed. How strongly does Paul feel about this? In back-to-back verses, he says this, look, if somebody walks in and preaches to you any other gospel other than the one that was delivered to you, if I walk in, Paul says, if I come back to your church and preach to you a gospel different than the one I delivered to you at the beginning, if an angel comes down out of heaven and preaches to you another gospel, he says they are to be what? Accursed. They are to be an anathema, maybe your translation says. The word means to be set aside for destruction. It means they are to be doomed. It is to mean the greatest judgment is to become. In shortest of terms, it means they are to be damned. Does this sound like a nice, fuzzy, warm, make-you-feel-good sermon from Paul? Has Paul got his little gloves on, his little kid gloves, and he's, 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 no, he's not dancing around this one, is he? He says, if somebody comes and preaches to you a gospel other than the one that has been preached, whether it's me or anybody else or an angel from heaven, they are to be set aside for destruction. If they come and teach to you a gospel that is diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace, and anything that is not salvation by grace through faith is diametrically opposed to the gospel. What does the Bible have to say about those who lead people astray? says it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea than to lead one person away from the gospel of Christ. Paul is not messing around. He is adamant about what's going on in this church because it is so vitally important. He's not messing around because souls were at stake. Because not only were the teachers who were misleading people, were they set aside for destruction, but if they lead people away from the truth of the gospel, then they are dooming people to an eternity apart from Christ. And Paul says, we cannot tolerate that. He's upset because the purity and the power and the influence of the church was at stake. The ones who God had left behind to share the good news of the gospel with the nations. If they get the gospel wrong, then the message is wrong. And if the message is wrong, then the mission is useless. He's upset because God's glory is at stake. Because every other gospel isn't God-focused. Every other gospel is man-focused. And when men follow man-focused gospels, God is not glorified. So in the last few moments that we have this morning, why should we care about this? We're not living in one of these churches in first century Galatia. We don't have, at least in this church, we don't have false teachers coming in and teaching untruths. So why should we be concerned about this in the church today? Because many many, many are still being misled by false teaching. Many today are still being disturbed and led away by distorted gospels. Let me just give you some examples of some contemporary distortions of the gospel. I'm not here to preach against things. I'm here to preach the truth to you, but sometimes in order to know the truth, you've got to know what's false too. And so let me just give you some examples of some modern teaching or preaching that is a distortion of the gospel, probably the most familiar, most common is the prosperity gospel. 
a gospel that focuses on our health and on our wealth that says if you just have enough faith, God will give you everything that you desire. That the gospel promotes material and physical rewards. I'm sorry, people. Somebody's going to have to show me that in Scripture. Somebody's going to have to show me where the Bible promises us health and wealth and prosperity. Somebody show me where I can take this to the slums of South Africa and tell these people that if you would just give your last dime to the church, that God's going to bless you and multiply it over and over again. Somebody show me that in Scripture. I don't see the Bible promising us material wealth and physical rewards. I don't even see it promising us comfort in life. If anything, I see it promising the exact opposite. It's a distortion of the gospel to say that it's about your wealth and your health. Does that mean God doesn't care about us? Of course not. God cares about you more than you could possibly fathom. But he cares about your eternity more than he cares about the blink that you're going to be on this planet. Legalism. Legalism says that there's a rigid list of do's and don'ts, and if you follow this list of do's and you don't do the things that are on the don'ts, then you become pleasing to God. And in order to stay pleasing to God, you have to continually do the list of do's, and you have to continually avoid the list of don'ts. And if you just do these things, you'll be good with God. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do all those things, and that makes me right with God. That's a distortion of the gospel. The law was not given so that we would follow the law perfectly. The law was given so that we would recognize, I can't do that. I need a Savior. Mysticism. There's a gospel of mysticism that says that you need to have a special spiritual experience or a special spiritual feeling or a special spiritual emotion that happens somewhere down the line. Yeah, you might be saved, but later on you're going to get more of this emotion, this feeling. And if you never feel this emotion, then you're not genuinely right with God. If you don't feel this experience, then you're not genuinely right with God. And there's something wrong with you if you don't feel it. Listen, we don't judge the Bible by our feelings. We judge our feelings by the Bible. Do not trust your emotions. Do not trust your feelings. I'm going to tell you this. Don't trust your heart. I want to follow my heart. Please don't. Please don't. Follow the Word of God. There's social activism, sometimes referred to as the social gospel. This is a gospel that says, hey, I want to go and help the underprivileged. I want to go and help people in society to raise themselves up. I want to focus on making this world a better place. Listen, there's nothing wrong with helping people. But if that's all your goal is, then all we're doing is making this world a better place to go to hell from. The gospel isn't just helping people. The gospel is helping people so that they would understand the love of Christ. Traditions. You say, that doesn't sound like a gospel. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day had all kinds of traditions of man that they raised to the, ele- to, to the level of God's word. They would say, hey, Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands the right way? They don't, they don't wash them correctly. And Jesus is like, where, tell me, where is that in God's world? 
Where, where's God, that in God's heart? You've taken your traditions and you've elevated them up here and you've said, if my people don't wash their hands based on your traditions, they can't be right with God. You say, we don't have that around here, do we? Oh, no traditions in the Baptist church? Holy cow. I've been, in, I've been in fights over where the communion table sits. I've been in fights over the color of the carpet. I've been in fights where, in, in a church, not me personally. I've been in churches that fought whether the organ should be on this side or on that side, and you clearly don't know Jesus if the organ isn't over here. <laughs> Worship style, clothing, and these are all Traditions. But man, we will be quick to accuse somebody of not being right with God if they don't follow our traditions. There's the gospel of higher knowledge. Man, if you just know the Bible more, if you just study the Bible, become a student of the Word. Look, I'm a student of the Word. I think you should be a student of the Word, but that's not your end game. The reason you study the Bible is to get to know the God of the Bible to know that relationship. But there's this concept that says, if I just know more, look, mastering the Word of God without the Word of God mastering you does you no good. Universalism, this is the last one. There's a gospel out there that says God is love, and it all works out in the end for everybody. Somehow everybody just gets to go to heaven. It's all going to be okay. There's no sin. There's no consequence for sin. God is a God of love. He is a God of love, and he loves you, but God is also a holy God and a just God and a righteous God. Why should we care about this? Because people today are being misled by these false gospels and many, many more. And we must not only stand from this pulpit and proclaim the truth, we must stand from the pulpit of our lives and proclaim the truth day in and day out. Because people are being deceived and people are having their peace disturbed. There are many people walking around today listening to these false gospels and then walking away from them because at some point in their life they're going to find out that didn't work. There are people today who are in turmoil because they're in a religion that says you can never be right with God. You have to do this and you have to do this and you never know if you're right with God. So I have to, do, I have to confess this and then I have to go to this and then I have to pray this. And then if I die and I don't have somebody pray over me, then I don't know where I'm going to go. And there's just guilt ridden. There's no peace because the gospel has been distorted. And the worst of all, people are being led headlong into hell. So how do we keep 60% of those who are young adults from walking away from the church when they get out on their own? How do we prevent the church from, from walking away? How do we keep our lives, our families, our souls from being disturbed by these false gospels? How do we combat against a diametric gospel that is dooming people to hell? We gotta, we gotta believe the gospel, people. We gotta trust it. We got to share it. We got to teach it. We got to live it. Because the point is that there is no other way to be right with God apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the truth, whether you want to accept it or not. That's the truth, whether the world wants to believe it or not. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. That's either true or it's not. And I know that it's true. How do I know it's true? Because Jesus said, you tear down this temple and in three days later, I'll raise it back again. 
And Jesus laid his life down voluntarily and vicariously for us. And three days later, victoriously, God raised him from the dead because he accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. Imagine two-thirds gone. We can't be okay with that anymore. We cannot be okay with that. As we close this morning, just three things. This message from Paul's letter to the Galatians ought to hit us in three areas. There are some of us, perhaps, that he hit in verse 6. He says, I'm really amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. Because there's some of us in here who know that we've been saved by grace, that it wasn't us, it wasn't what we did, it's what God did for us. We're, we're resting in the finished work of Christ. But somewhere along the way, perhaps we deserted that for a gospel of works. And we think right now I'm holding on to my salvation because of what I'm doing, because of the works I'm doing. Because I came to church today, God's happy with me. Because I put money in the plate, I'm okay with God. And there is a slow drift that moves away from just resting in grace and doing those things because we want to do them, because we glorify God through doing them, versus, man, I just got to keep doing this because I think I'm making myself right. Oh, there's a lot of guilt in that. There's a lot of pressure in that. And there's a lot of people, perhaps in this room, who are living under that guilt and pressure, trying to keep yourself right with God when the truth is that you don't hold on to God, God holds on to you. So maybe today, some of us who have deserted the gospel along the way need to be like the prodigal son and come to our senses and say, God, thank you for my salvation. Help me stop trying to keep earning it and holding on to it. Let me just love you and live for you. Perhaps some of you have been here, you're here because you've been disturbed by a distorted gospel that has been taught to you somewhere else. In another church, perhaps, hear me. Be very careful who you watch on television. Be very careful who you let speak into your life from a gospel perspective. Because there are more false teachers out there on the airwaves than there are true teachers. And some of you have been hurt and you've had your peace destroyed and disturbed by somebody teaching you a false gospel. And my prayer for you today is that you would find peace and rest in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, there's this group. If you don't have peace with God, if you're still just, hear me. The Bible says that apart from Christ, you cannot see God. Apart from him, you will not spend eternity in God's presence. You will spend eternity separated from him. And if you've never trusted in this gospel alone for your salvation, the Bible is just simply clear, you're doomed in your sin. But God, but God loves you so much. He's done everything necessary. All you have to do is cry out and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. So today, as we close in our time of invitation, three things to pray over. God, have, have, I, have I deserted your gospel? If so, God, I, I need to come back. I need to, I need to confess that. I need to, I, need to, I need to be the prodigal son that says, Father, forgive me. Have I, has my peace been disturbed by these false teachers? And 
and am I doomed right now? And do I need to cry out to God? So three prayers, God, forgive me. God, give me peace. God, save me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your apostle that you called out and sent to the church was not messing around with this issue. This wasn't something that he thought, I can just take this easy on. No, this was something that he, he dove headfirst into and was passionate about using strong language because it is such a vitally important, it is the key important to everything. It is the gospel. And we cannot compromise on the gospel. Because when you compromise on the gospel, you no longer have the gospel, and apart from the gospel, there is no salvation. And without salvation, there is no peace. And so, Father, we thank you for the strong word in your letter to the Galatians. Father, I pray that as a church and as individuals uh, who love you and serve you, that we would listen to this call in our lives to put the gospel at the center of everything. 